We are into our second to last week, I think, uh, of the book of Esther. And in this week is uh, the week where we will see the Jewish people finally defeat their enemies. And in doing so, we are going to learn some things about God. Now, before we get into that, we're going to do a quick review. They say the repetition is mother of all learning. Uh, in Esther, some of the Israelites were living in Persia under King Ahasuerus. And there was a man named Haman who was second in command who kind of manipulated the king who wasn't really paying a lot of attention to issue an edict that would have all of the Israelites killed by their enemies. So in response, a Jewish man named Mordecai who worked in the king's court went to his cousin Esther who was queen and says, listen, you are queen for just as such a time as this. You need to do something. So in response, Esther invites the king and Haman to dinner. And while they're dealing out appetizers and eating and having a good time, the queen tells the king everything that Haman is up to. So Haman is in deep trouble because the king gets really angry. And he has Haman executed. And then after Haman was executed, we saw last week, Esther is pleading for the life of her people. Why? Because in Persia, an edict of the king could never be revoked even by the king himself. Once it was put into play, that's it. It was there to stay. So even with the death of Haman, there was going to come a day where the enemies of the Israelites had the right, without government interference, to attack the Israelites. So in response to this, and the pleas of his wife, King Ahasuerus, he issues a new edict. And it says that the Jews can gather together and they can defend themselves. I mean, not that they wouldn't defend themselves otherwise, you know. Oh, look, the bad people are coming. Well, it's approved by the king. Guess it's our time to go. No, they probably would have defended themselves, right? But now they had the backing of the government, which changed everything. And that brings us to chapter 9, where we will be today. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, on the 12th month, which is the same month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred, and the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in the cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought them harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all, fall, on all people. And all of the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for fear of Mordecai had fallen upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame had spread throughout all of the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Now verses 5 through 10 talk about how the sons of Haman were executed. We're going to skip up to verse 11. That very day, the number of those who killed in Susa the citadel, the capital of Persia, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have, been, have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Then looking to his wife, he says, Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed also to do according to this day's, today's edict. Give him another day to do this. And let the 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. I'm assuming as a warning to everybody else. 
So the king commanded this to be done. And a decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. And then the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, and they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives. And they got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but laid no hands on their plunder. This is the word of the Lord. So to sum this up, the Jews gather together and they lay waste to their enemies. Out of the possible million people in Persia, there were 75,000 of them that they ended up slaughtering. And they were so effective, it surprised the king. He's like, whoa, what else did they do if they killed that many here? And Esther's like, you know, he says to Esther, what else do you want? This is going well, I'll give you your next request. And Esther's like, oh, that's so sweet of you, honey. How about we do this just one more day? Let's have one more day for the Jews to eliminate everybody. And Esther doesn't play around, does she? Do not get on this woman's bad side. Now, why would Esther want to do this? Seems like a little overkill, possibly. In fact, some write that they believe that power has went to Esther's head in this moment. And this request for a second day is actually how she got the name Esther, which is uh, named after Ishtar, who was the Persian goddess of love and war. Now, like many other aspects of the book of Esther, we can't really know her motives or what she was thinking. Now, personally, I don't think this request came from a place of like bloodthirst or revenge. And I'm going to tell you why I think that. And the reason that I'm going to tell you why I think that is because it's going to lead us into a conversation about the nature of God, especially in the Old Testament. And this is a topic that a lot of people struggle with but we'll get there in a few minutes. So one of the reasons that Esther may have made this request is because some of the enemies of the Jews remained after the first day. That's why there were enemies to kill the second day. And Esther wanted to make sure, wanted to, may have wanted to make sure that all of the enemies were eliminated. Now, perhaps Esther remembered the mistakes of her ancestors. Centuries before this, King Saul, who was king of the Israelites, the first king of the Israelites, who was Mordecai and Esther's ancestor, he had been commanded not to spare his sword to, to kill all of the Amalekites who were Haman's ancestors. First Samuel 15.3, God speaking to Saul. He says, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill them, both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. However, Saul did the opposite. He didn't wipe out everybody. Kind of liked a few of them, so he kept them around. And so now generations later, partly because of this decision, the Jews are in a bad situation. And as a side note, it should remind us of the long-lasting effects of our sin. How our sin can affect our children and their children and their children, and their children. It should put literally the fear in God, of God into us for any of us who are struggling with sin. So in a way, seeing the Jews finally destroy all of their enemies is an act of divine justice. 
that should have been carried out centuries before this. And this is further supported by how the Israelites acted. The record states three times that the Jews didn't take any of the spoil. Any, they didn't plunder anything. That means they didn't take any of the stuff of their enemies. They didn't take their TVs or the VCRs. Well, DVD play. Well, yeah, back then they might have VCRs. You know, their eight tracks. You know, it was a long time ago. They didn't take, you know, their cars. They didn't take their stuff. The point is the Jews are not becoming opportunistic. They're not getting carried away. In fact, this was in Jewish law. That in, and it was in order to keep their motives pure. This is also a good reminder. Sometimes when we are fighting for the cause of the Lord, when there's something that we disagree with in the church or we disagree with politically, to be very careful about our motives when what we are fighting for is something that actually just benefits our lives, our comfort. So for these couple reasons, I see the second day as an act of divine justice in the eyes of Esther. And this would make sense because in the Old Testament, you see the nation of Israel often used as a weapon of God's divine justice. And I want to stop and I want to talk about that for a few minutes because this is where people struggle with the Old Testament. Causes them not to believe in God or a lot of Christians because we can't understand it, we'll just read it like this or we won't touch it at all. because it seems so different than the New Testament. I mean, in the New Testament, you read, love your enemies, right? Turn the other cheek. And in the Old Testament, you read, slaughter them all, right? That's what you read. In his 2000 book, The God Delusion, and in countless speeches, the celebrity atheist Richard Dawkins, he said this about God. He said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. He's jealous and proud. He's petty, unjust. He's an unforgiving control freak. He's vindictive and a bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, among many other unpleasantries that he had called God. Why? Because he cannot reconcile this God of the Old Testament who will literally eliminate and kill entire nations. But he poses a good question. How can a God of love, how can the God of love in the New Testament be the same as the God of wrath of the Old Testament? How would you respond to that if someone brought that charge to you? How do you, how do you reconcile that in your own heart? And you need to reconcile it because you cannot stand here and worship God if you do not worship him in his totality. For the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New. So you must be able to even reconcile this for your own heart. But it's a struggle because they do feel really, really different. But they usually feel different because we read them quickly and surfacely to knock them off our daily devotional list. When you really sit down and read and allow the Holy Spirit and you study what you are reading, it becomes evident that God is not different at all from one testament to another. In the New Testament, Jesus teaches about love and grace and mercy. But in the Old Testament, God is declared to be compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. You read this in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, in Nehemiah and the book of Joel, a few times in Psalms, just to name a few. 
But also in the Old Testament, you see God's judgment and wrath poured out on sin. But you also see it in the New Testament. Just talk to Ananias and Sapphira who lied about what they gave to the church and were struck dead on the spot. Or Jesus who talks about hell and the gnashing of teeth. Or read Romans 1 or the book of Revelation. God is no different from one testament to another. What is different is the context. You see, the Old Testament is focused on the nation of Israel. And God's dealing with them. And how they interact with other nations who had turned their back on God. And the New Testament is about the life of Christ and the early church. Of course, they're going to look so different. They're completely different contexts. God does not change, just the context does. Now, some might say, fine, I get it. But what gives God the right to destroy an entire nation? What gives God the right to wipe out an entire nation? I think one of the reasons that some struggle with this, that are offended by this thought, is because we assume that people are basically good and they have the right to live. All we hear is or read is about some nation that is destroyed and we picture these innocent people just going about their business, having no idea what is about to come. They're just sitting there feeding the homeless or, or making mittens for underprivileged children. Oh no, it's God's destruction. Where is this coming from? But this isn't the case. The Amalekites, our first example, the descendants of Haman. You know, when they saw the Jews, when they saw these millions of slaves that were being led out of Egypt in Exodus, do you know what they did? No, they didn't take them food or water. They put a group together of men, an army of men, and they tried to wipe out the Israelites. They tried to kick them while they were down and take all of their stuff. And from then on, the Amalekites would raid the villages of Israel time and time again, generation after generation. Now make no mistake. When you see God exercise his wrath in the Old Testament, his judgment, it is important to remember the people deserved it. The Canaanites, they're our second example. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, God spells out this coming destruction of the Canaanites. Listen, the Canaanites were not good people. Okay? They're Canaanites. They, they weren't called Canaanites because they were dog lovers. They come from the land of Canaan. So one of you got that. That was great. I'm good. The rest of you, it'll come later. They were not good people. They hated God. And we know this not from just biblical sources, but outside of the Bible as well. They would literally perform human sacrifices on their kids to the gods. They would slit the throats of their children and offering them up to idols. Slit their throats. And this is only one of the ways that they did it. I don't even want to mention the other ways. They were a brutal and sexually immoral people. And even with what I just said, it's not like God wiped them out right away. God gave the Canaanites 400 years. 400 years to repent. Generation after generation for 400 years, God waited. But they would not stop. And they were aware of God. They admit it in the book of Joshua 
They could have sought repentance, but they didn't. And except in very, very rare circumstances, they, comp- they continued their rebellion against God. Listen, the God of the Old Testament is some angry, wrathful God with a short temper who flies off the handle and just wipes everybody out. He is a patient God who is slow to anger, but he is a holy God who will enact justice and judgment for people who refuse to repent, period. Deuteronomy. He says, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Now, some might say fine, but what about the innocent? What about the women? Women were included in the orders to destroy. It's a good question, because the women didn't fight, but that doesn't mean that they were innocent. In Numbers 25, you can read about how the women use their seductive behavior to seduce Jewish men. And because they got in a relationship with these Jewish men, they started worshiping false gods. They weren't innocent. All right, how about the really tough one? What about the children? You may have noticed when I read that passage earlier in 1 Samuel, says children and infants. The God you just worshiped 15 minutes ago, he ordered that. The one that we pray, fight my battles, the great I am, he's the one who ordered that. How do you deal with that? This happened more than once. It's a tough question that pulls at the heartstrings. Now, It pulls at our heartstrings even more because we're so removed from that time frame and we live in such a life of comfort. Death is so far from us in America. Even with the pandemic and everything that happened, we have no understanding of suffering compared to the rest of the world, especially generations this long ago. But still, it pulls at our heartstrings. So as tough as it is, I want to give you a few things to consider. First, if God is God, he is sovereign over all life, period. God does not owe us anything. He gave us life. We did not earn it. We did not demand it. He gave it. And he can take our lives whenever he sees fit. In fact, he ultimately, he will take every one of our lives. He will take my life one day. He will take your life one day at our time of death. So we must know that God does not owe us anything. Second, it's worth considering the internal state of those infants killed in Canaan. Now, I don't have time to fully dive into it today, but we believe that if a child is too young to comprehend God, that they go straight to be in his presence. There's a couple of verses in the Bible that lead us to us. I won't even go over all of them. King David, when his son dies, his infant son dies, he talks about 
He is at peace because he knows he will see them, see him again one day. You also see in Romans 1 where Paul says, the existence of God is clearly perceived by man so that they are without excuse. They're without excuse to have faith in him. So we would believe that those who do not have the ability to perceive, like an infant, small child, or someone with a, a major mental disability is ushered into the kingdom of God. For we believe that God holds us accountable to the information that we have about him. So based on that belief that these children are in a far better place than that if they had lived out their adulthood as Canaanites and possibly ended up in hell as they were ushered in to this pagan society. We have to remember that God can see down the road. We cannot. He would see what these children would become. We cannot. We have to be humble enough. If you follow God, you have to be humble enough to admit that you don't know everything. That you either believe that his ways are not our ways, as we read in Isaiah 55, or you don't. You have to understand that you cannot understand everything that God does. So what do you deal with it if you realize, well, I can't understand this and I just want to trust God. Well, how do, you, I don't, how do I make that connection that he's a loving God? What will you do is you take the things that you don't fully understand and you put them in the light of everything else that you do understand. So if you saw a God of wrath who crushes every one of us when we sin, then you can say, well, he's just a mean-spirited God. But that's not what we see. Tell you what, I'll tell you what I'm talking about here. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, when God is speaking to Israel through the leader Moses about the future judgment of Canaan that we just talked about, here's what Moses writes. He says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land, the land of the Canaanites, to possess because of your righteousness. He says, For you are a stubborn people. A stubborn people. He says, remember and do not forget how you have provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. God is saying to the Israelites, like, I'm going to wipe them out because of their evil, but I ain't doing it because of you. You are just as rebellious as they are. And I think when we understand this, and we understand that we are just as rebellious, it changes the question we should be really asking. The question you shouldn't be asking, how, how can God judge the Amalekites? How can judge, God judge the Canaanites? The question should be, how come God was so kind to Israel if they were such a rebellious people? If Canaanites were rebellious, if, God, if the Israelites were rebellious, if we're rebellious, why doesn't God judge us just the same? For every one of us has sinned. Romans 3.12 says that no one is righteous. No one understands God. No one seeks him. We have all turned away, every single one of us. And as we read in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, does anybody know what it is? Death. Death. So why are we not dead? We're still here. 
How many times have you been rebellious to God? You were probably rebellious this morning in some way. Some of you sitting at home, let's be frank, some of you there for COVID reasons, some of you there because you're just more comfortable. Why does God not strike us down? He doesn't do it because there's one time in the Bible where he did destroy an innocent person. An innocent man who lived the life that every one of us have failed to live. A man who deserved the very best of God and got the very worst. He was speaking of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 53, he says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Verse 6, speaking to our condition. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And because of the grace and the mercy of Jesus of God through Jesus Christ, God gives life to people who deserve death. He gives love to people who deserve wrath. He gives joy to people who deserve sorrow. He gives peace to people who deserve warfare. Grace to people who deserve justice. And he gives heaven to people like you and me who deserve hell. Oh, and when we understand our sin and our rebellion against God and his great and mercy, it's not why does God, has God killed some? It's like, why does he not kill us all? And it should cause us to look to God and say, thank you for saving my life. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. How do we respond to this? How should we respond to this? We should respond with an utter, complete feeling of humility and enduring grace and thankfulness that we have been saved. A helplessness in our own spirit of our sin that causes us to look and rely upon God that you and I, without Jesus, are enemies of God. Without our faith in Christ, without his death and resurrection, he sees us the same as the Amalekites and the Canaanites, and there comes a day where we will be judged and should cause us to be thankful. That's what causes us sometimes to raise our hands or to sing out loud. It causes us what to come to church and to open his words and to pray or to sing out in our car is an utter thankfulness that God has saved us from destruction. And we need this reminder because we get complicit. We focus so much on the blessings of God, we forget what we've been saved from. And when you remember what you are saved from, it repurposes your life to realize that there are others around you that are destined for the wrath of God. And it snaps us out of these days of living our lives from our Netflix TV shows to our overworking to filling our plate with every activity under the sun instead of being focused on serving the Lord and reaching him for Christ. For some of you, 
you look at your life and you judge your relationship with God based on how good things are going. Money's coming in, marriage is working out, sports teams are winning. God must be blessing me. I have conversation after conversation. And so you don't come to church, you don't read your Bible, because things are good. But blessing is not a sign of God's approval of our lives or our relationship with him. They can be, but they also can be a distraction. The only thing that saves our soul is when we put our faith in him. When we realize that our sin separates us from God, that we repent and we say, Father, I thank you for your death and resurrection, and I put my faith in you, and I will follow you this day forward. Some of you watching or listening, you're of the opposite mindset. You feel like you've done too much, you've gone too far, and God is done with you. He has walked away from you. Oh, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, I'm going to give you a little Old Testament example. There's a woman named Rahab. She lives in the city of Jericho, where the Canaanites live. In fact, Rahab's a Canaanite woman one of the women destined for destruction. And as the Israelites are coming in to defeat them and to crush Jericho, and you guys probably know the story of Jericho and the walls falling down, they send in a couple spies. Rahab, Canaanite prostitute, decides to help the spies. She goes, I've heard of your God. I fear your God ever since I heard what he did in Egypt. And she helps them. And because she helps them, her family has saved a Canaanite. She's saved from that wrath and destruction. Oh, and it even gets better. You may not even realize, but Rahab becomes an ancestor of Jesus Christ. If I remember, she's either the great-grandma or the great-grandfather of King David. Somewhere in there, you can go read it for yourself later. Think about this. Think of all the things I said about the Canaanites, how they're all destined for destruction. And yet this one woman was saved. And not only was she saved, she was put to be a part of the biggest story ever told in the birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, my friends, you are never too far from God. The wrath of God that will come one day as we read in Revelation or when we breathe our breath less, it's not written in ink, it's written in pencil. And as we choose to put our faith in Christ and we choose to look to him, it is erased and written in pen instead of enemy and wrath is love and grace and a son and a daughter of the king. And so my prayer today, if you are yet to put your faith in Christ, know that the God of the Old Testament, the God of the new, he waits. He waits. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. Put your faith in me. And you may truly understand who I am, who I have called you to be and the love and the hope and the joy and the purpose that I have in your life for my glory. Amen, church.